Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. For the 68th episode of our podcast, I interviewed Pat Kinsell, founder and CEO of Notarize. You know, some of the most successful tech companies have triumphed not only because they have a great technical solution, but it is the fact that they had to totally disrupt an antiquated industry. I'm referring to really hard things like changing laws or regulations. Think of what companies like Airbnb and Uber went through in their early days. Notarize, which has raised $31 million in funding, has been in a similar situation where they are taking a centuries-old process of notarizing documents into the modern digital era by allowing any person or business to get their documents legally notarized online. It is a massive opportunity as over 1 billion documents are notarized every year. Pat Cell is a serial entrepreneur and a venture capitalist. His prior company, Spindle, was acquired by Twitter, and after the acquisition, he joined Polaris Partners as an investor, where he has led rounds of funding in companies like Drizzly and Lob. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Pat's background growing up on the West Coast and why he moved east, his experience working at Microsoft's Fuse Labs in Cambridge, and how that experience set the stage for his next company, how Spindle raised capital from top investors on both coasts for their social discovery app and the details behind the acquisition, his experience joining Polaris as an AIR and eventually becoming an investor, the story of a critical mistake that led him down the path of exploring the world of notaries and ultimately starting a company to disrupt this industry, advice for entrepreneurs looking to raise capital, practical advice and strategies for purchasing domain names, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Thank you so much for listening to the VentureFizz podcast. We are the leading podcast for discussions with the top entrepreneurs, executives, and investors across Boston and New York tech. So I appreciate all of your support and thank you again for listening. If you found this episode or any of our interviews interesting or helpful, then please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will really help us get the word out there about these amazing stories. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Pat. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So Pat, I was going through your history and you've started multiple companies, serial entrepreneur. So a question I have for you to to kick things off. Do you think entrepreneurship is something that people are born with or do you think it's something that they learn along the way? I think it's a combination. I know that's a cop out on your question, but um, you know, my grandfather always said of me that I leap before I look and you know, someone who sees an opportunity and just goes for it. And that's literally true with as a kid jumping off of things and now as an adult, you know, deciding to start a notary company based in Virginia, despite having really never been there in my entire life. Um, But a lot of the skill set I think is learned and it's about being part of a community. Um, You know, I grew up in uh, uh, the Bay Area, born in San Francisco, then raised in Portola Valley. My neighbor um, was one of the really early employees of Sun. So I saw him become fabulously wealthy and then not, and then, and then just wealthy. Um, you know, my parents, you know, going to Stanford business school and other places, my father, some of his closest friends were involved in early technology companies. So I always knew it was possible. And I think that's one of the core things. I also have spent some time in other countries. And so I spent quite a bit of time over in in Korea, South Korea, um, as part of an organization called spark labs. And I had some meetings with, um, you know, the minister of trade and the minister of culture and whatnot, and, and really engaged in a conversation about those countries and why, you know, startups aren't as prevalent and, you know, the, the culture of that it's okay to fail, that so long as you've tried really hard and had an ambitious dream and really pursued it, that that's fine. Other countries don't have that. And so I think it's a combination of the personal 
you know, sense of being okay with risk, really wanting to do something, uh, and then being as part of a community that where, where you can see that it's possible, you can be supported in that. You know, it's it's okay to to try and to fail. And so, cop out of an answer, but uh, you know, I think it's a special thing, and everything's everything's got to be just right to really support it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I agree. I think it is a combination of both, you know, personally, I, I think it's something that you have to be born with the drive, but you also have to have the exposure to it uh, as well. So I think, uh, I think you've got a strong point there. Now, you went to college on the East Coast, right? So you grew up on the West Coast, but went East to school. Why? Yeah, I actually went to boarding school out here. So I went to a school called Phillips Andover in Andover, Massachusetts. Um, and I, I grew up on the West Coast. Actually, my parents split up when I was young. My father moved to Oregon. My my mother was in California. And so when I was very young, I was going back and forth. So the concept of, you know, traveling and living in different places was something I was used to. And I played hockey on the West Coast. And, um, you know, hockey is a grueling sport on families, I think, in particular, no matter where you live. Mm -hmm. Uh, But on the West Coast, was doing a lot of travel for hockey. And so actually, I found a school in Minnesota called Shaddix. And I told my dad, I said, hey, I'm going to go to Minnesota and I'm going to play hockey. And my dad said, well, great, but let's go look at some other schools as well. And so we came back East, you know, I looked at all of the cast of characters of boarding schools and I, I just fell in love with the concept. I applied, I got in. So that's, that's what brought me East. Um, and then I ended up actually meeting, you know, the woman that became my wife there and uh, I've become very rooted in the East coast since I go back all the time. I'm in San Francisco, you know, more often than once a month and uh, my family still all lives there and I've, I've gone back and lived there for periods of time, but I, uh, I guess I reverse migrated as far as the technology community is concerned. Got it. And then, and then you attended uh, Boston university. Yeah, I was at BU. Um, after that, uh, I, I have to admit, I didn't finish at BU, but I did spend a couple of years there. Well, I thought that was an interesting point because you you know, again, you've started multiple companies. Um, so what was it that, you know, prompted you to leave before graduating and, you know, kind of the, do you, do you think a four-year degree is something that matters? Um, there's a lot in that question. You've cut right to, you've cut right to my core. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know if a four-year degree matters. I think what's really important is demonstrating you're someone that um, can accomplish what you set out to accomplish. And I think, honestly, I put myself in a bit of a hole in my career and my life for not finishing school. And um, you know, I talk to, to students frequently who are at schools here in the Boston community who are contemplating dropping out. And the conversation I have with them all the time, you know, if you talk to students at Harvard, they always say, oh, well, Mark Zuckerberg dropped out or Bill Gates dropped out. And I say, well, you have to remember that they were pulled out because their ideas, their businesses were so compelling, right? right. They, they happened to start something, it caught fire. You know, they had to go pursue those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you just don't want to be here. Let's be honest about that. And let's right. have a conversation Very about different. why, right? Um, honestly, I was more in the latter camp. I, I, I loved my experience at BU, but I just, I felt angsty. I mean, Andover was a very intense academic, you know, environment. I was just all about school all the time. I got to college and I spent almost all of my time reading books about venture capital and startup, you know, incorporation and business models. And I mean, that's what I was doing. I was, I was not going to class and I was just reading those books. Um, and so I had a conversation with someone and I, I said, I'm going to go get a job. And, um, he, I think in an effort to call my bluff said, okay, we'll go do it. Um, so I applied for a job as a project manager on this, um, you know, replatforming of this product with 
no experience and and frankly the company clearly had no no concept themselves so they hired me they gave me a shot and I got it done and I said okay well you know I guess I can do this um and I just never went back um so there isn't any grand story I just my life took me in a different direction your question about you know does someone need to go to college when I was then subsequently out in the market dealing with you know really accomplished people early feedback I got was you know they said look bright guy, passionate concept, you know, passionate about your concept, whatever. But you don't have a record of accomplishment. You know, you, you stopped going to college. I then started a company which didn't succeed. I didn't really get things over the finish line. And they said, you know, how, when, when we look at you, why are you someone that we should bet on? Um, and that really, that really cut to the core, you know. Uh, and, I, and I've really thought about that a lot since. So, you know, my spindle experience, yeah, yay, you know, we sold it. But what I actually get credit for when I talk to people is that I started that thing and I got it, you know, into safe Harbor at the end, despite mm-hmm. all the ups and downs that, that, that companies have. Um, and, and I really, we, you know, we, I think about that a lot with our company, we've got to finish what we started. Absolutely. Now um, you did start a company though. So you, you had a couple of jobs and then you started a company uh, back on the West coast, right? Like your first company. I did. Yeah. So I, um, I had that, you know, project here at a company in Boston, and then I decided, hell, I'm going to move to Los Angeles. You know, why not? Um, and so I literally like packed and moved in a week, and I drove across the country. Um, that's a long story for some time to try. I did that by myself, but um, and I got out there and I I rented a room in a house in Manhattan Beach, and I had a roommate, and um, you know, we just had some ideas, and so uh, yeah, we started a company. It was called Existory. That concept was uh, you exist. You're part of history. Tell your story. You exist, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So what, put a was it, bit too much thought into that at the time, but um, but it, it sounded like it was pulling in kind of like your social networking identity, you know, through all these different channels at the time. Yeah, I mean, it, it had honestly a lot of um, correlations with what I then worked on at Microsoft and then Spindle, and so it was a company where the thought was, hey, everyone's posting all this content on Facebook. And um, you could use, you know, algorithms and structured data in order to create really interesting views. And so what's happened at a place, what's happened at an event, how do our lives relate to each other, um, things of that nature. And so the idea was not to actually require people to do more work. They could just continue to do what they were doing on Facebook, but then get a lot more value out of the content. Mm-hmm. And so we got it built. Um, and then, you know, Facebook basically replatformed. You know, there was a first version of the platform a lot of people forget was all about iframe applications inside of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I got, you know, the feedback from someone I was close with. They said, Hey, look, you know, you really should learn what great teams look like. You know, software development is a skill, um, you know, individual skill, team skill, whatnot, go, you know, learn on someone else's dime basically. Um, and that's what took me to Microsoft. And you work for Microsoft Fuse Labs in Cambridge, which, you know, the team there, I, like, so this is something separate we have to do on VentureFizz where we do these alumni spider web type posts. So uh, yeah. I think, you know, next year we have to do the, the Fuse Labs alumni because I mean, Katie Ray and Reed and, you know, many, many others. So um, what did you learn there and, and what were the projects you were working on for Microsoft? Yeah, I loved my experience at Microsoft, which, um, you know, Microsoft is such a big company, it's possible to have many different types of experiences there. Uh, I think mine was was pretty atypical. And so the, the idea was intrapreneurship, um, you know, so entrepreneurship, but within a big company and that, 
you know, business lines are not naturally, you know, inclined to disrupt themselves. And so how within a company can you have a group of people leveraging the assets of, of that organization to really think about new products, new concepts, um, which then may fold into the, into the product lines or may, may start new businesses or new products and whatnot. And so started by, uh, you know, Reed and Katie here in the Boston community, uh, uh, Reed started and Katie Ray, they went on and, you know, Techstars and now with the engine over at MIT. Um, but the concept was that you would come in and you would say, I have a testable hypothesis. Um, so I believe that a such and such better design in this market is going to you know, be better. I believe that this algorithm or that this, whatever, you, you had to identify a problem, right, in market. Um, and here's how I'm going to go address that problem. Here are the resources I need. And this is the key, you know, outcome which will validate this effort. And so you'd come in and you'd pitch anyone on the team, a designer, an engineer, a PM. It didn't matter. Anyone could come in and pitch. There was like an investment committee, so akin to a, you know, a venture, venture capital group, and they'd say, okay, great. You're going to go get your one engineer and your one designer. You're going to build this thing, and, and you would test and iterate. And so started a project there, um, which ultimately uh, led to Bing Social Search. And so we were working on a bunch of cool um, uh, you know, search ability from social content. So similar to my experience with existentry, uh, really what we were doing is we were taking URLs and then finding all of the conversation about them. And so that thought you could integrate that into a browser, but you know, you would land on a page for a New York times article and here's what people are saying about that article. And then here are the other articles that are being shared a part of that conversation. So really starting to getting into social relevance mm-hmm. realization then was, Hey, this could be a great, um, you know, application for Bing itself, partnered with that team and then and launched Bing Social Search. And it's ancient history now, it was either 08 or 09, but that was actually the first, you know, major social search engine launched by any company, startup or, or large company. Yeah, so after that, I started um, a project um, called docs.com. And so this was the idea that, um, you know, Microsoft had these amazing online editing suites. They had Office 365 at the time, Facebook, you know, the best environment to, you know, to share and to connect with friends online. And so we integrated Office 365 into the Facebook community and we launched it as um, docs.com. And that was, that was launched by, by Facebook at their big conference by Zuckerberg. And it was a big partnership. And um, that was a great part for a while too. So that was, that was my run at Microsoft. And I, I had a great time. I, I met really close friends. I still work with Alex Jenkins here who runs product. We met there, started my last company with, with two people and then, hired some others. I mean, it's a, it's, it was a fantastic team. Well, and obviously that experience that you gained led you down the path to start Spindle with, like you said, Alex Lambert and Simon Yun. So uh, what was, what was Spindle? And the other thing that I thought was really interesting was, you know, you raised capital. I know you raised capital, not from just East coast investors, but you know, West coast too. So, uh, you know, what was that point of coming up with the idea and then, you know, raising capital from both, both coasts? Yeah. So I don't know that I can entirely take credit for the concept Actually, I can't entirely take credit for the concept of Spindle. I give Simon and Alex and then the rest of the team a lot of credit. But, you know, what was interesting is when we were at Microsoft focused on social search, we were focused on derivative content from that data. So finding links, you know, in a Bing experience, people care about looking for links, right? Pages of the, of the internet. So Spindle was all about that the content itself was really high valuable, really highly valuable. And that it was really an entirely unique you know, corpus of content, really first person accounts of what's happening or what is a business saying about themselves right now. Um, And so what we did is we built a, um, you know, a custom custom ingestion engine. And then we would take real world data and we would model 
um, the content so we could create algorithms, right? And so, you know, really what they were was like topical real-time timelines. And so we built, you know, a local news feed. You could do actual search against that. We had this extraordinary ability to have real-time alerts. And so just to give people a real-world example, so, you know, um, you could open up and say restaurants. And instead of seeing, you know, that Cleary's is down the street, which you know, you'd see a tweet from them that they posted on Tuesday saying, hey, come in Thursday morning for, you know, half off brunch. It'd be Thursday morning. So we'd say, you'd pull your phone out. Hey, we know they're nearby. We know it's Thursday. We'd search for all of that. We'd, we'd find the terms half off. We'd give it a relevance boost. It'd be at the top of your feed. You could then, you know, type dollar oysters as a standing query, put your phone in your pocket and just walk around town and get notifications. And so, uh, you know, Twitter ended up buying it. They used it for other things. You know, you could create any model. So it went on to be uh, power a lot of what they did for the World Cup, things of that nature. Um, the team worked on a lot of the sports and media things at, at Twitter. I still want the standing search thing. I would use it all the damn time. I was going to say, no one's actually, like, I mean, it's a great idea still today. Like I, I, no one's even doing what you're, what you're setting out to do. No, no one is. And uh, I mean, that's for me, what's fun about that company is, you know, people who, who knew this space, you know, they really thought we created some great technology. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, not everything works out, but um, you know, maybe someday that'll exist again. Now, how about the fundraising? Because not only uh, did you have great investors locally, but, uh, you know, Greylock, which originally was, you know, an East Coast firm, but now largely a West Coast firm, and SV Angel, which, you know, Ron Conway and his, uh, you know, cohort there. Yeah. Um, so I'm from the Bay Area originally, and, um, you know, I go back all the time. I've, I've really prided myself on only going out there when I have something great to show or talk about. You know, I think, you know, there's a lot of people sort of hanging around the rim out there. Um, and I've really made my personal brand about just going off, building something great, showing up when it's, when it's ready. Um, and so when I was at Microsoft, you know, coming down and, you know, meeting with Facebook, Hey, I've got a real product, a real project. I want to work on this with you, whatnot. And so when we were raising money, um, I left Microsoft and because of my relationship working with Facebook and Twitter on the search thing and on docs.com, there was a, a gentleman named Dan Lewin. um, who's a CVP at Microsoft. He managed the company's relationship with VCs and key startups down in the, the Bay Area. He was actually one of the founders of Next Computers, Steve Jobs, a remarkable man. So I reached out and said, hey, I'm leaving the company. I'd love to keep in touch. Anyone you recommend I meet with? So he introduced me to Dave Barrett here in Boston, who I've since gone on to have a 10-year relationship with. And Dave had Docpatch Labs. And so um, that was really the first you know, incubator in Boston, it was free office space. Mm -hmm. I remember it was so funny back then. Everyone was skeptical and it was like, what do they want from us? You know, um, <laughs> everyone was talking like, should we really take this? You know, now startups get free space all the time and it's, you know, almost expected. But um, so I was in Dogpatch, really got to know Dave. Dave wanted to fund the company and, and I really wanted to, to try to get some folks on the West Coast that had, you know, stronger relationships. And so I actually... Um, I got introduced to, you know, SV Angel, Ron Conway, and David Lee through another investor out there. And really on the strength of my relationship with Facebook, he made the investment. Um, what was unique about Spindle was uh, we had an agreement with Facebook for data access, um, largely because of my prior work with them. Um, and for him, he said, hey, if Facebook's willing to take this bet on you guys, then that's validation for me. And then Daniel introduced me to Greylock, and I, um, I sat down with John Lilly, who was the 
prior CEO of Mozilla and um, Reid Hoffman, who everyone knows who he is. Um, and they both said, look, we've been looking at this space for a long time. Um, someone eventually is going to find out some sort of search, you know, experience on top of this, this data. Um, you know, they said, you have a totally unique approach. We like that you're a team that's already tackled this in a different way before trying something new. Um, so yeah, they, they invested and I've, you know, stayed close with John in particular since. And, um, you know, they're, they're a fantastic firm, obviously. Now, Twitter went on to acquire Spindle. Um, I'm always fascinated by the acquisition process. Now, you guys were working closely with their data, so I assume there was a lot of deep relationships within Twitter itself. So how does that actually, how does that conversation even begin? Did they like say, hey, we really like what you guys do in technology-wise, maybe instead of a partnership, we should look at more of an acquisition? Like, how do those conversations even start? Yeah, there's a cliche that people have told me 10 times that I actually have come to accept, which is, you know, startups aren't sold, they're bought. Um, and so it's really hard to go sell a startup. Um, it might actually be impossible. Um, <laughs> and, you know, maybe just to expound on this a little bit, I actually think that East Coast companies are at, at, a, at least in that space, are at a dramatic disadvantage for both fundraising and then also to sell themselves. And when I talk to a lot of founders on the East Coast, they, they say, oh, well, such and such company out there, they, re they raise money in a week. And or they raise money in a month or whatever the story is, right? And what they're forgetting is that those companies are in that ecosystem. They've seen that investor 10, 12, 15 times over the course of two years at conferences. They've been dropping little updates. They've been getting coffee. Hey, I've got some things I want to ask you about. What they're really doing is they're just starting to build a narrative. Oh, well, if I went out and accomplished these things over the course of the next year, how would you think about the business? Oh, by the way, I, I did go accomplish those things, right? Um, and then, yeah, then they run a very tight process and they raise money in a month, right? Um, a lot of founders in the East Coast, what they do is they go out there and they have a first meeting, first conversation, and they expect to do the same. Don't have the relationship, don't have the context. And so I often advise people like, you need to go out there just for a long period of time and really be intentional, build relationships. Selling a company is no different, right? Um, you know, what was great about what we did at, at Spindle is it was very deep technology and, and in some ways quite innovative. And so the entire team started to have relationships with the companies that we were partnering with. It wasn't just me, you know, flying out to California and meeting a corp dev person. There was a relationship with someone on the search teams there, on the data teams, on the, lo on the local teams, whatever you wanted to call them. And then what happened for us as a company is we were out trying to raise more money and we got feedback from investors and they said, look, this is a, a fantastic, you know, product that you've built, whatever, um, you know, you really need to push on, you know, contractual rights to data, like you're built on prop of, top of other people's data. It's not public, it's proprietary. Who's going to pay you for this? And so we were very focused on building great technology and then suddenly, oh shit, I got to build a business, right? Um, mm -hmm. And so that, that in and of itself changed the nature of the conversations. We started talking to people, hey, you know, what would it look like if we you know, wanted to pay you, you know, for some of this, you know, what if we went out and monetized this with a media company, how would you want to do either profit sharing or whatever it was? And it was all very, you know, collaborative. We weren't negotiating. We were talking about, Hey, if we succeed in building the amazing search experience with your data, you know, how's it good for you as the platform? How's it good for your users? How's it good for us? How's it good for then our customers? It just got, it just changed the nature of the conversation. Mm -hmm. 
And then we got some interesting opportunities to license our technology. Um, and, then, and then it became, well, if we licensed our technology, how would that change our ability to work together? You know, and there's moments in businesses where it's, it's easier to sell them. So before you have a lot of commercial and, you know, yes, contracts, but also encumbrances, right? You know, you can't do this, can't do that. You have to meet these expectations. We can't just kill your product if we wanted to change the direction. And then ultimately, you know, we had some people say, hey, we think we want to bring this in-house. We think we want this to be a part of our, our core offering, right? Um, and then we, of course, had relationships with everyone else and we called them and said, hey, you know, I have an offer we might sell. What do you want to do? Um, and, and in hindsight, you know, Twitter was, was probably the best partner all along. You know, we, we took unstructured data. We structured it. Twitter's data is, you know, it's probably the least structured compared to Facebook. But, you know, that's all. That's all in hindsight, and I could have been more strategic, probably. But then, the, so the next stop on your career was you actually one of your investors was Polaris, so you went and, and became a, a venture capitalist. Um, so, what, what was the experience like there over that stretch of time? Yeah, so that was also very um, sort of iterative. Um, we were selling the company. Um, Dave Barrett was the lead investor. He's the Polaris managing partner. Um, you know, very frank conversation. Hey, Pat, do you want to sell this company? Um, you know, what is the team like? What is Simon, you know, Simon and Alex, like whatever. Um, we decided, yeah, it's the right, it's the right time to sell. We had relationships with, with all of the would be acquirers. We knew where they stood. We knew the amount of money that it would take to really take the product to scale. Um, you know, so you just do that math risk reward. We said, yeah, it's time to sell. Um, you know, the second question that Dave asked me was, do you want to go work at Twitter? You know, is this personally something that you want to do? And I appreciate, you know, him asking me that. Not every investor would. And I did. I mean, I, I Twitter is a fantastic company, but my my wife at the time was six months pregnant. Um, I was exhausted. I had been on the road for a long period of time. And so he said, look, I'll give you another option, which is, you know, come into Polaris as an EIR. Obviously, you got to check with Twitter, right? Make sure that they're still fine proceeding with this, but you got to, gave a chance to be in an EIR. So, you know, I called Twitter and I sort of presented where I was at and we came up with an arrangement. And, um, and so, yeah, I went to Polaris really initially as an EIR. Um, but then you became an actual uh, part of the investment team, right? Cause you led one of the investments in a Drizzly and another company too, right? Yeah, I did. So it's interesting. I, I, I was at first solely focused on trying to start something. And in hindsight, that's a terrible way to try to start a company. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I can't come up with an idea today. This is horrible. <laughs> well, yeah. And then, you know, if you're not just naturally inspired, right? So I, I for a while, was going to start a company in the hotel space. I was all excited about it. It, it was this idea, maybe someone will, someone will do this. Um, I'd be happy if they did. But this idea that, you know, hotels are all about revenue management at booking. But once you're on site, they do nothing. And so there's all this latent inventory of services. What if you had an app that allowed you to have like a remote control on the property? But really what it was doing on the back end was, was pro, you know, profiling customers, what they wanted. You know, they liked spa appointments, knowing there's an appointment, sending them notifications. Hey, if you take this unused appointment right now, you can have it half off, right? There's, there's availability in the restaurant. Um, and then I was in a hotel out in San Francisco and I wanted a cheeseburger. And I picked up the phone and I said, hey, can I have a cheeseburger? Um, and I realized that was pretty damn convenient. Um, it would have been more work to use an app. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that died on the vine. I still think some some of it, some parts of it are are worth exploring. But um, so I was really sort of at a loss. That's when I got more involved in the Korea thing. 
Um, I was over there looking for inspiration. Korea or Asia in general, it's just, it's so different. It's so worth exploring um, for people. And then uh, I found a company out in California called Lob, and I brought it into the firm and I was talking with Dave about it. And he said, look, you should do this deal. Um, it's a great, it's a great company and we'll make you an investor. And so I did that deal. Uh, that company's doing actually extraordinarily well. It's like Twilio for print and mail. Um, they have a bunch of you know big brand name customers. They've, they're, it's a great, it's a great company. And then I invested in, in Drizzly here locally and, um, and then started Notarize. And so I've, I'm now sort of in a hybrid role there. Well, let's talk about Notarize. So what was the background story of, I, I need to, you know, basically change a, you know, centuries old process of getting things notarized. So um, what led you down the path of disrupting this space? Well, I mean, I really, I looked around and I thought, what's the sexiest thing I could work on? <laughs> so notaries. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually it's all, it's again, it's all related. I mean, my life is sort of a, a sequence of, of just random occurrences, but I, uh, I was in Korea, you know, and I sold Spindle and actually I signed the paperwork in the back of a taxi in Korea um, using DocuSign. And then I returned home uh, and there were some notarized forms subsequently for the transaction. And so I come back and I have this awesome experience and everything's, you know, digital and the mobile payment way ahead of us and whatnot. And I have this company where every funding document is electronically signed, every employment agreement, and then ultimately this transfer, you know, the acquisition with, you know, a lot of money behind it. It's all electronically signed. And then I go in to get this thing notarized and I'm thinking, wow, this, this is the document. This one needs to be notarized. Don't um, screw this one up. And I go into a, a store. I won't shame them, um, but here in Boston and I put the piece of paper down, he stamps it um, and I mail it off to a big, you know, financial services company and, you know, great, grand. Uh, I get a call a couple weeks later saying, Hey, you know, the notary uh, stamped it, but he didn't sign it. It's not valid, but we've actually gone forward with the transaction. And uh, um, so we're going to FedEx this thing back to you. And then you're going to go find the guy and get him to sign it. And then you're going to FedEx it back to us and just a nightmare. Um, so that was the, that was the, this is ridiculous, right? Um, right. If, if this were Working software, process. Yeah, you know, you'd have, you'd have validation, right? You wouldn't be able to not sign the document and all these things, right? Um, and so I initially said, you know, why do we notarize documents? I look it online. Um, and why don't we do it electronically? And I, I found the explanation that you have to meet physically with someone. And it's because it's, it's rooted in law. And I said, okay, damn, I guess some things just have to suck. Um, and moved on with my life. Uh, again, had that young kid. So my son was a couple months old, a lot of late nights on the internet, you know, what do you, what do you do except research notary law? Um, and yeah. And so I found a law in Virginia that, that said presence. So, you know, the requirement to appear could be conducted over video and they had all these requirements for ID verification and all this other stuff. So I thought, cool, you know, intellectual curiosity, itches scratched. Again, I moved on, came, came back to it. Um, you know, could you build a national service out of Virginia? That was obviously the key question. Like no one, no one would want to make this investment for just one market. Um, convinced myself that I could ask an attorney. He said, you know, smells right. So I came into Polaris and, and presented it and 
but but honestly, my expectations were not what it's become at all. I thought it would be a really fun project to work on. That'd be a cool thing to say that I had had built and done. And then really, uh, it's been it was the early commercial interest that really, you know, made me realize this was, was go time. Well, when you talk about markets, right, and size, right, so uh, over one billion documents a year are notarized, right, and it's a it's a massive multi-billion dollar market. Yeah. I, I certainly did not appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. So um, now how did you actually, you know, what I think is fascinating about Notarize and what I think is fascinating about a lot of the companies in the Boston tech scene and why they're thriving. Uh, you know, I think of PillPack, right? It's not like you can just set up a website, mobile app and you're done. You had to go and change legislation I don't know if it was state by state, but I know you were out there lobbying to change the rules of how notary is done. So that no, not every entrepreneur can just like build that app and do that. Plus oh, all the uh, legislation and lobbying you did. So talk about what you had to do to actually get this. So that was a form of approval. Yeah. So first and foremost, I didn't do all of it myself. Um, you know, so I ended up partnering with, you know, Adam Pace, co-founder of the company who's um, got, you know, his background is in uh, Capitol Hill and, and really legislative affairs, much more than that. But um, so you got to partner with the right people. But, um, you know, I, to be frank, if I knew what it would take, I would have never done it. Um, <laughs> you know, it's yeah. been a nightmare. Um, but really for us, you know, what happened is we, we launched the product and almost immediately some really, really big, you know, name brand companies, you know, mortgage lenders, you know, auto insurance companies, banks reached out to us and almost to a T we heard the same thing, which was, if you think it sucks to get something notarized, imagine managing that a hundred thousand times or a million times a year and having your whole business process dependent upon that. Right. Mm -hmm. And we heard things like, you know, 30% of notarized documents have errors that require re-execution, you know, average return time of between three and five weeks because you send it out and never comes back. You know, mm -hmm. having to harass your customer. Hey, you know, your customer's trying to open an account and give you money if you're a private wealth firm. And hey, did you get that thing done? Did you get that thing done? Like, that's just not the relationship or interaction that they want to have. Mm -hmm. um, so we knew almost immediately that there was just insane commercial interest. And it wasn't about notarization. It was about digitizing a, a business process. Um, and so it was much more important than we realized. Um, but then the immediate question was like, uh, can we do this? Is this legal? And so we lost a lot of deals early on in the compliance department, you know, um, of these companies. And so we said, okay, well, we've got to go out and convince people that this is legal. And for a little bit of a timeline, we launched the company in February of 16. I believe it was in March, the national association of secretaries of state, which is an organization of all of the secretaries of state across the country, um, launched a task force to study the issue. So it was the NAS Remote Online Notarization Task Force. And they invited people to participate. So we became task force advisors. Um, and we went down to one of the meetings and it was extraordinary. The, you know, the woman who runs the organization got up and she said, I want everyone in the room to stand up and tell me who you are um, and what your position is on the issue. And so I'm like sheepishly with Adam in the corner saying, I, you know, we're notarized, you know, we stamped documents on the internet. Um, and then it was like the Federal Housing Finance Administration and HUD and the CFPB and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and very large banks and title companies and insurance companies saying, 
you know, hi, we're here and we want this, or we know this is the future and we want to have a say in how it goes, or we don't like this, whatever it may be. Um, and there was just immediately just incredible attention on the issue. And what it did is it just forced the conversation. I think a lot of people who want to go change industries, the key issue is getting people to care and engage. And because there were these public forums that, that occurred, and we, we, don't, we take no credit for creating those forums. I mean, NAS did an extraordinary job driving this issue. Um, it made people take positions and articulate why they did or didn't like things and let people address them. And some of the concerns were ridiculous. You know, things like, well, what if the signer has a bomb under their chair? Right. And we'd go, well, the notary can say, show me under your chair on an iPhone. You're like, you know, just, but really coming from a place of just not understanding and just needing to work through these issues. And so we actually, as a company at first, didn't set out to change law at all. What we did was we set out to convince people we could do this out of Virginia. And so we did um, basically a lot of simulated bankruptcy trustee proceedings across the country and tried to demonstrate that with all of the existing law in place, that this is good. Everyone's going to end up in the same places where they are today. And um, we ultimately had an, a very well-respected attorney. I won't get into it, but who was giving a key presentation. What he said is, you know, the laws are actually quite clear if you're willing to read them. Um, but it's just, you know, an absurd grind to get through that. So that's what we did. We convinced people that we could do this out of Virginia. But then what people said was, well, are we really willing to, to base this whole system on one state's laws, right? And what if they change the law and whatnot? And so that's where we said, fine, okay, we'll go, we'll go get some other states to, to do this. But what was great was there was already a conversation. So the first state that then passed after Virginia was Texas. And that was held up by everyone to be model legislation. And so in the Mortgage Bankers Association, the American Land Title Association, you know, the realtors, a bunch of big banks, and then us basically signed off saying, you know, we support this, this is good. And now that model legislation is spread across the country. And so eight states passed, you know, several introducing this year. So it's, it's been a wild ride. Honestly, it's, you never could have charted the course. It's been, a, it's just been a, Hey, what's the next thing we got to go do? Okay. And then primary question that I always get asked or, or the phrase is like, you know, the juice better be worth the squeeze. Like what we've always known from day one is the prize here is really big. And so our position is whatever it takes. So how does it actually work notarized now as far as, you know, if, if I it was closing on a house, like what would I do? So as the consumer, uh, as the person buying or selling the house, what, what would happen is you would get an email with an invitation. You click it and it either takes you to the web or to our apps on iPhone or Android, depending on your device. And you have to identify yourselves or, or prove your identity. So you're going to answer five identity challenge questions, things like what street did you live on, you know, et cetera. You're going to take a picture of the front and the back of your driver's license. Uh, we have software that validates it's an authentic ID. And then you connect in less than 30 seconds with a notary over video. And you have the entire closing package in view you know, the notary in view, they have the same. And then in real time, you view the document together. And so the notary actually controls the meeting as they would in a traditional closing. So if you sit down to buy a house, you know, that you're presented pages, they're discussed, you're walked through the closing. So our product does the same. The notary drives the meeting. Um, you have the chance to answer, ask questions. You sign where required, they notarize where required, and then you're done. Um, what's really cool, though, is 
behind that product, there's much more that's happening. And so we're integrated directly with the lender systems, with the title company systems, now with the secondary market. And so we're automating much more of what's happening around the closing. And so, you know, Fannie Mae has some research out that says people who adopt, you know, technology like this, lenders will save about $1,100 a closing. Um, and uh, that's, without getting into the numbers, that's very substantial for them. Um, it dramatically improves the profitability. But it's not just real estate. I mean, that's true for, for auto insurance companies, for private wealth companies. I mean, for bakers, for roofers, for, you know, they have these, these critical things that need to occur. Uh, and there's real cost savings for getting them done, you know, more quickly and, and you know, more efficiently. And what's the, what's the scale of your business now? So we're, um, we're just shy of 100 employees. Um, and then we have, you know, many more people on the notary team. Um, so all in as a company now, you know, we're probably about 160. Um, and, um, you know, our, our customers in the real estate market now themselves touch more than 31% of real estate transactions. And so uh, Redfin's a customer, uh, you know, Lennar, the country's largest home builder, Realogy, um, the country's largest home builder, United Wholesale Mortgage, they were actually our launch partner. Um, they're now, they're a top 10 lender. They're the largest non-bank purchase lender in the country. Um, and then just a, a ton of other f fabulous partners, you know, Stuart Title, Westcord, you know, Natic, you name it. Um, and then outside of real estate, we've got about 2,000 businesses on the platform of every um, shape and, you know, size. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we're increasingly focused on being a platform business and having a great set of APIs and developer experiences and really trying to power a lot of other, other platforms and different verticals. Um, so yeah, we're, we're scaling. Well, to accomplish this, obviously, uh, to climb up this mountain, you need uh, a team to do that. And you mentioned how many employees you have. So how do you go about evaluating talent as you bring them in to, to notarize, you know, at each different stage along the way? Yeah, this is something I've struggled with. I've actually been talking about this quite a bit lately because, you know, for the first two or three years of the business, I was so in tune with selling people, right? You know, I'd sit down and go, let me tell you, you want to join a notary company and we're going to change the world. And, you know, I was having to convince people to work here. Um, and now we're much more being a company that people want to work at and having to switch into saying, well, well, we really can go get, you know, a fabulous candidate. And I need to be, you know, evaluating and, and whatnot. And so that's just, a, it's a, it's a culture change in a company that you don't, you never really think about unless you actually get to go through it. Um, for us, just in terms of profile, I've always tried to hire people who, because um, this is, I think, is myself, you know, who've experienced some success in their career, but they really want the big, the big win. They want to build, put their mark on something, right? Um, you know, Jess Mayer, who is at HubSpot, for example, and then at Vision, she's been, she's done fantastic work. She's been a part of great teams. She wants to put her name on something, you know, and, and, and I want Notarize to be the company where she can come in here and say, you know, I took all of my career experience and I, I made this mine and I built an extraordinary, you know, program. And I think if you look across the company, Alex Jenkins or Steph Kelsey or, you know, the people that we have, they all fit that profile. I think I do too. You know, cool. I've built some stuff before. None of them still exist. You know, none of them stood the test of time. I want to build something that stands the test of time. Um, and I think, you know, additionally, we're, we're a mission-driven company, right? You have to believe in what we're doing here. And we are the first to do this. So we have a lot of, you know, ridiculous challenges put in front of us, be it compliance or regulation. And, 
And it's not just about building a pretty product um, and selling it. You know, we really have to go and figure this out. If, if we screw up, we had some, a customer tell us, hey, if you screw up, I'm going to have to buy back $100 billion of mortgages right now. <laughs> it's like this, this better be legal and it better work, right? Uh, and that's high stakes. And so, you know, we're a company of people who really are excited about that and int intrigued about that. And, um, and we try to hire for that. And what is the plan as far as growing the team in 2019? You know, we're, we're, we're trying to figure that out now, honestly. Um, you know, I think also from the sitting in the chair as an investor, you know, when your company, Drizzly was similar where, you know, just maybe a Drizzly example. Um, they for a long time had a, had a model where they had local people in all the markets. They thought we're going to try to get Seattle off the ground. We're going to put five people in Seattle, right? And over time, you refine the model, and it's, it's not that people weren't extraordinary, but you realize, wow, this is much more efficient, it's much more leveraged if, if we centralize and we, you know, we focus on partners and, and partner marketing, whatever it may be, right? So we're, as a company, we're, we're right in the midst of that. We're trying to figure out you know, how to do this. We've now changed the law in a bunch of states. You know, so we actually opened an office in Texas. Um, we you know, changed the law in Nevada as well. We're having a conversation. Do we need to open an office there or is it more that we should just be hiring people on the ground? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to figure all this out. Uh, we're onboarding lenders, you know, into this system. It's a lot of work. It's very manual now. Um, can we get better at that? And so, you know, frankly, I don't know how big of a company we're going to be. Uh, we, we definitely are going to grow the team, you know, by the end of 2019, I think we might be twice the size, still really trying to hire in product and engineering, um, really focus on go to market. Um, so, you know, now that we've got a more repeatable, you know, we, we were well hunting for a long period of time. Now that we've got a more repeatable sales process. I know what our customers look like going to be hiring more people in sales and go to market. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm pretty upfront. We don't have it all figured out. So, well, you have a unique perspective because you, um, not only have raised capital multiple times, but you've actually been a VC or still are a VC where you've made investments and led investments. So what, what, what advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are looking to raise capital? Yeah. Um, when I was raising money the first time for Spindle, um, I got some advice. Someone said, why do you sound so damn apologetic? Uh, and that stuck with me for a long time. And, and just to dig in that a little bit more, I was trying to raise a million and a half dollars. And I was telling everyone I was going to build this search system and it was going to be worth billions of dollars. And he said, if you believe it's going to be worth billions of dollars, why are you being apologetic about wanting a million and a half bucks to go do that, right? And I think what I realized for myself when I've been raising money more recently or when I've heard people pitch, you know, there has to be just real intentionality. You have to have a real plan, right? You have to say, hey, I'm going to go do these things, right? And that's why I think, of course, track record. But when people raise money for second and third companies, they're like, not, hey, I need $500,000 to go build this cute thing. They're like, it's impossible for me to actually validate this concept with $500,000. I need $3 million. I'm going to put a million of it into marketing and I'm going to do, you know, this, this, and this. And so I think that early founders, and it's hard to know because, you know, if you've never done it before, but you can't, you know, you can't just launch a company by doing the bare minimum of the bare minimum set of things. Right. Um, and I'm, I do, I do recognize that's how some people have to start because they don't have resources or whatnot. But you know, when raising money, you, you, you have to really lean into what you believe and what you're trying to accomplish and just be unapologetic about what you need to get it done. Or you just, you don't sound credible, frankly. That's an interesting point of view. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's almost like a, sometimes people view, um, you know, raising venture capital as a badge of honor, right? Like we did it yet. 
I mean, obviously there's uh, the VCs are looking for a return on their investment and their customers are ultimately the entrepreneurs, right? So without the entrepreneurs, the VCs would have no business model. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting also is I think what I've learned from my seat in the investor's chair is it's actually truly okay to lose money, right? It, people talk about, you know, venture capitalists having a portfolio of businesses and then thus some need to perform very well in order to make the returns work, right? Well, then as the entrepreneur, you need to be saying, if it's okay for me to lose money, the, the social trade or whatever you want to call it, you know, is that then I'm going to do whatever I can to give you the maximum return, right? And so I'm going to be ambitious and I'm going to have this great plan and I'm going to go, you know, whatever, right? And often I think there's this, there's this dangerous middle ground where people, you know, they raise the capital as though they're playing the game for breakup, but then they frankly play too safe and you end up sort of in a middling spot. And, you know, I, um, you know, my first company, it was my life. I never imagined doing anything afterward. Right. But then it sold and I woke up and I was like, Oh, you know, earth is still turning. Right. Um, and so companies, it's, it's fine to just be very intentional about driving them, having an exit plan, whatever it may be going for the most ambitious thing possible and, or failing so long as you, you did those things. Right. Um, and I think, I don't know. I, I tell people be more aggressive, you know, be more intentional, you know, I don't know if that makes sense. Long rant. It totally does. It's great advice. I have a, a random question for you. Uh, spindle.com. Yeah. Great domain, right? Single word.com. Um, what advice would you give to founders that are trying to buy a domain? Like a legit domain. Oh, I love this question. I love everything about domains. I, I, I spend more time than I'd like to admit, like on a weekly basis, looking at domains. Um, so one, it just takes a lot of time. You have to be very, very um, thorough. Uh, and you have to get lucky, frankly. So, you know, the spindle story, um, I think one of the real challenges in the, in the domain market is it's, there's professional domain speculators or investors, and then there's sort of, you know, the man or woman who just happened to buy a domain. And if you run into the man or woman who happened to buy a domain, give up. Because what happens is, you reach out to them, you offer them $5,000, they want a million dollars. They think it's their, <laughs> their jackpot, right? One million dollars. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, with Spindle, what I did is I went online and I found a bunch of really famous, prominent domain owners. Their sites, they talk about them, right? Uh, and I emailed all of them and I said, hi, I'm the, the CEO of a company that just raised a million and a half dollars. Here's my product concept. This is what we're trying to do. I'm looking for a domain in this vein. Um, I'm a serious buyer. Do you have a something that would, you know, meet, you know, the set of requirements in your, in your portfolio. And I got a response from every single one and I got proposals from every single one. And then I got on the phone with them and they had, you know, 20,000, $40,000, $60,000 prices, which, you know, they, they weren't then suddenly going to 500, right? It was, it was just a straightforward negotiation. Could I afford it? Could I not? And so spindle.com I think was 40 or $45,000. I can't, I can't recall. Um, so that's great advice because you always think like, oh, this person can't know that I've raised a million and a half dollars because then they're just going to like, you know, price gouge me. So you were very upfront about your status. Yeah. And then it's like, kind of like if you were, you know, going to a real estate company saying, Hey, this is what I'm looking for. And this is what they're going to yeah, give I'm you a qualified buyer, option. Right? Yeah. And then notarize is a very similar story. Um, I reached out, same thing, said literally the 
the the same thing and they said hey actually we uh just is this was a domain broker so not a not a it was a big big company that sells them for third parties and they said actually um there's a very large private equity fund that just bought a massive portfolio of domains and we're tasked with liquidating it. So yes, we're selling. I think they said 60, I said 20 and I bought it for, I don't know, 35 or 40 um, in a few days. And so you can get lucky. Um, but again, you know, I had the money. Uh, a lot of people, you know, they launch companies um, and they have no funding. They have to be more creative. Um, so, you know, you got to do what you can, but um yeah. That's great advice. Well, Pat, thanks so much for taking the time for sharing all this, you know, your background and starting companies and all this great advice and words of wisdom. And as you noted, you know, Notarize is hiring, so you can check out their job openings on VentureFizz or on their careers page. But uh, Pat, thanks again. Yeah. Thank you for the chance to talk and for everything you're doing to support the community here in Boston and whatnot. So, uh, so thank you. Appreciate it. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.